I would never launch a business again that doesn't have some sort of stickiness element to the customer. Because otherwise, you know, it's so hard and expensive to go and acquire that customer to go back and have to do it again and again and again. Hey, I'm Shwang Esther Shan, and you're listening to Shopify Masters, your companion for starting and building a business. Have you ever wanted to make a perfectly crafted cocktail with just the touch of a button? Well, Ryan Close and his team at Bartesian is making it a reality. Their machines use a single serve recyclable capsules to make cocktails, kind of like how coffee machines work. But this easy to use concept wasn't so easy to market. Ryan had to create a whole new product category, educate customers and negotiate with manufacturers for licensing deals. Ryan joins us now to share all the strategies that got him past these hurdles, brought Mila Kunis onto his board, and allowed Bartesian to be a multi-million dollar business. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Shwang. Thanks for having me on. We can see that Bartesian machines are super easy to understand and to use, but you're actually asking consumers to change the way that they're making cocktails. How did you approach creating this whole new product category? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, most great ideas, it was, you know, identifying what the problem was. And, you know, I was a bartender through college and a a lousy one. And so, you know, when I tried to make a cocktail for my wife, you know, and not a super complex one, an old fashioned, for instance, you know, I I could never get it right. The the sugar wouldn't be, you know, blended in properly. So, you know, you the last sip, you're getting, you know, a big glass, a mouthful of sugar and um, so, you know, we, we understood that it's difficult for a for someone at home who's not a trained bartender to make, you know, great tasting cocktails. There's oftentimes there's unique liqueurs and bitters that are not available. You don't have them on hand. You don't, you might, you're probably not going to have fresh pineapple juice and things like that at home. Uh, as long as if you're like me, you're not. The idea was just make it easy for someone to enjoy that craft cocktail that they would have at a lounge or a restaurant and have that experience taken care of for them. And you're essentially fighting for counter space or convincing someone to adopt this new lifestyle of relying on a machine for this cocktail. So what were some of the marketing strategies you used to attract potential customers in the beginning? Yeah, honestly, you know, it was a lot of just conversations with folks who was going to as many shows, as many bartending events that I could go to, uh, get their six foot table and eight foot table and just talk to people houseware shows. And this was when we just essentially had like a, an early stage prototype that didn't work nine times out of 10. And so we would, you know, lug it around the country, wherever we could go that was inexpensive, that would take us and, you know, do just more discovery work and understand, you know, what are those pain points for consumers? You know, what are they willing to spend? Is it something that people will buy and, and it will catch on? And, and again, when early stages, we didn't know. Everyone we showed it to was like, this is the greatest idea ever. I love it. You know, it's a no brainer. But again, for us, it was, hey, the the cocktails have to taste incredible. Otherwise, it's just a novelty and it's a it's a kitschy item. And, you know, it's something that is going to be sold in some, you know, airline magazine. Right. And and no offense to airline magazines. There's sometimes some good stuff in there. But, you know, we we wanted to definitely create something that was a premium experience, luxury item. And so, you know, it took five years of development R&D to, you know, we, we joked that we were the world's slowest startup, you know, it's in all the textbooks is like, you know, get your product, you know, get it out to market as quickly as possible. It wasn't the case with us. We took our time and really honed the craft, pardon the pun, but the craft cocktail to make sure that it was just totally perfect before we launched the product. 
I really like the fact that you were on the ground talking to different people at events, understanding what the customers needed. And one of the big breakthroughs through all of the research and interactions was that you realized it was actually smart to license out the different machines to manufacturers. Talk to us about that process of actually negotiating with some heavyweight manufacturers. Yeah. uh, So there's two things that we really learned in, in discovery. The first one was understanding the that the consumer isn't looking for just, you know, a, a plus one drink at home, uh, you know, a vodka soda or a rum and coke or vodka OJ. They, they're looking for more complex cocktails curated at the touch of a button that are using real ingredients, nothing artificial, no artificial colors and flavors. So, you know, we learned that and then we learned that the customer wants that, you know, they want to be involved in that experience, right? So being able to customize the spirit that they put in. People were typically not brand agnostic. They have a specific vodka that they love or or whiskey. And so they wanted the ability to do that. And then they also wanted the ability to customize their strength. So each time they put in a capsule to make the cocktail for them, they could have a mocktail light, regular strong and, and be a part of that process, which was key. So that was, you know, the first thing that we learned so we could tailor the product accordingly. I think all the textbooks are right when they say, you know, you can't just make something that you think is going to work you. You have to understand what the consumer wants. And then to your question, you know, we started getting incredible early stage success through Kickstarter. Early stages decided we wanted to manufacture was the initial plan. We went to China. We hired people who knew how to do that. Because certainly me and my co-founder at the time had no idea how to build a product from scratch and find factories. And I'm not an engineer by trade. And so, you know, we had to hire these people. And then we were starting to get purchase orders, right? Um, pretty sizable ones, 5,000 units when there was no way we could produce. So we had the factory, we, we paid for the tooling. It was a lot of money at the time, you know, three, 400,000 for us. It was a massive hit for us cash-wise. This is, again, we have no sales. We had a tiny little bit of seed money. And we realized very early, like there's no chance we're gonna get a bank loan to, to produce these 5,000 machines. If we were to raise money, you know, you're, rate, you're diluting your business and your equity for working capital, which, you know, is, is just never a good idea. So I came to the conclusion that, you know, we need to find a partner that can do this, you know, and not only that, it's, you know, hardware, there's a ton of obviously elements to it. Making the sale is one thing or building the product is one thing, but you're constantly tinkering and re-engineering the product to, to improve it. It's a work in progress always. It's not like you're, you set it and you forget it because especially with a new product and category, you know, you're then dealing with aftermarket and sales service, and so finding a partner for us was key. And so we were able to find that through um, Hamilton Beach Brands, which, you know, I've been doing it for over 100 years. And I imagine there's so much cold emails, networking, actually pitching to reach and yes from Hamilton Beach. So give us some advice for founders who are in that position in the process of finding a partner. What is the perfect structure for a cold email? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of luck and a lot of, straight up hard work, right? I mean, you've got to, certainly you don't want to spam people, right? I mean, that's never a good strategy, but I'm sure people smarter than me, you know, write on LinkedIn and help people. You got to curate your message accordingly to who you're reaching out to. You can't just say, you know, hey, I want to have a coffee with you. Especially now, it was maybe a little different. This is going back eight years with me. It was a little bit more of the new frontier on LinkedIn where you you actually, people would read your email and respond. But, you know, you got to still be curated and, you know, you have to find people that actually want to see you win. So I would always reach out to people that have a vested interest in either the space, the category, 
the entrepreneurial world spirits. Um, so, you know, fortunately for us, our business is a really fun. Like it's cool. It's, we're talking about having great drinks and making drinks and cocktail culture. So people want to be a part of that. So, you know, finding people who are interested in that and then finding people who, you know, hey, I can create a win for you if you're willing to come and help me. You know, here's here's ways we can help each other out. And so that was key is just, you know, and obviously just be authentic. Like, you know, if you're going into it, just trying to figure out how you win and how you can get one up over someone else or, you know, it's it's never going to end well. So actually truly wanting to help the person you're talking to and, and seeing what they're involved in and having interests, common interests. And I think picking out who to reach out to within an organization is also very tough. What was your approach there? At first, you know, I, I would go right to the top, right? Like I would be going to CEOs and, and owners and most of them, as you would expect, wouldn't respond. But then, you know, some of them would actually, you know, shockingly and connect me with someone in their team that that's that maybe is interested in having a conversation. Or I would go and reach out to other, you know, director level, management level roles and, and just let them know, you know, hey, this is this is some ways we can help you out. I would love to get some help from you. Like I'm, we're trying to launch this business. We've got some traction. Here's some of the wins we've got early on. And fortunately, you know, we had some decent press even several years before we even launched. We were getting great press from CNN and things like that. So it made it life a lot easier to be able to take those press tidbits and add them into the email. So I would highly recommend if you're a pre-launch product and well early before going to market is work the PR angles as, as hard as you can, make that a, a big chunk of what you do throughout the day, you know, reaching out to all the big publications and agencies and, and sending them information, visuals, assets, and just saying, hey, here's what something we're working on. If you want to write a story and, and if you happen to have a kind of a cool product or story, then you'll get the press because people are always looking for content. I also liked what you mentioned earlier when you're talking to these big manufacturers to make sure that it is a win-win scenario. So how did you approach those discussions and showcasing the benefits to both brands to make sure that they see the value? It, it was tricky. You know, early stage, it was through, uh, we had a very large liquor company, one of the largest in the world that we worked with. Again, it was one of those win-wins. They were in, a, in the same space as us. It's like, hey, we're working on something that's going to be in the cutting edge and really be able to create direct-to-consumer relationships, right? Which, again, seven, eight years ago, the writing was on the wall that that is going to be a, a core piece of growth for, for all the big guys. And so knowing what your angle is to these folks so that, you know, that was the pitch to, to that specific large company. And, and fortunately, they were interested enough and large companies have innovation teams, innovation funds, and if they believe in it and they see an opportunity for them to win as well, you know, they'll likely at least get you a meeting. And in our case, you know, we had several meetings that which led to an investment piece, which was, you know, critical for us to actually build the product and a licensing deal. So that was, a, you know, very effective. So working with these established manufacturers was a great unlock for you. And you actually realized that licensing would be a great concept. So you worked with Stanley Black & Decker to create the BEV, which is an alternative version to the Bartesian. What are some areas that other founders should take a note of when they're in similar positions to going through a negotiation like that? Yeah, you know, that's something I'm quite excited about talking about. So I'll try to make it as interesting as possible because I nerd out about it. But essentially, we were the only product in the category. Keurig and, and AB InBev had partnered to create a competitor for us that was called Drinkworks, right? And so 
and they launched right around the same time we did, which I was okay with because again, high tide rises all boats. It's a you know we didn't have the deep pockets to to market and and educate consumers. So it's like this is a multi billion dollar partnership that is going to drive awareness in the category. Perfect. They weren't successful for you know a number of reasons I won't get into here. So we were the only player left standing, and and so you know I recognize that let's look, work with other manufacturers and potentially create our own competitor, which sounds crazy on the outset, but allowing Stanley Black and Decker to license, you know, have that technology to make their own cocktail machine that competes directly with the Bartesian, a it gives the consumer a unique set of differences. So there's a significant differences on the product. One is the bottles of booze actually go, you know, plug right under the machine, whereas ours you load glass reservoirs, and you know a number of other items that just differentiate the products. But they now in turn here's a multi billion dollar company with incredible brand integrity and awareness, putting dollars behind that the space for us. So it was a huge win. And, and, you know, every machine that they're selling is creating a consumer for us, acquiring a customer for us, and it doesn't cost us anything. And on the contrary, we get paid for it. And you're essentially becoming the new Keurig in this space because you are having the chance to license out to different manufacturers and they're all kind of helping you expand the category in general. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, I usually like to use Nespresso as the comparison, but in no offense to the Keurig, but we position ourselves a more luxury product and, and brand. And so you're, but you're exactly right. I mean, those it's not like I came up with the the model. It's it's been done before very successfully, and having manufacturers basically you know compete in the space and you know offer different features and benefits to the consumer, which is a huge win because engineering and and manufacturing and innovation is extremely expensive. So tapping into these global juggernauts to help you know essentially help us engineer and drive innovation of our products is was a huge you know feather in the cap. Negotiating with manufacturers is just one of the areas that helped Bartesian to grow. We'll get more into fundraising later on in the show. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to Shopify Masters. The best way to support the show is to leave us a review or hit that follow and subscribe button wherever you're listening now. It helps other people to discover the show and keeps us going. Thank you so much. So before the successful eight-figure rounds of venture funding, you actually worked a lot with angel investors to fund the business. Tell us a little bit about the early days and how did you actually find different investors? Yeah, you know, we did pretty much everything opposite of what the books tell you to do. We kind of did, I, I explain it as like almost like a pay-as-you-go, like a fundraise-as-you-go, right? We'd go find someone crazy enough to invest 25k you know and this is pre even having any functioning prototypes on on essentially a, a dream and a concept go from there and let that 25k is take it as far as we can go and obviously I would always be fundraising like you're always trying to get more but it was tricky when you're just talking about a concept and you know this is back when it still probably is but hardware was was tricky to get funding from and, and we were the manufacturers we didn't have manufacturing partners. And we're and on top of being a hardware company and the small two people in a garage in Canada, we're a CPG business. We, we, so we were launching consumer package goods business while launching a hardware company with you know limited funding and, and two people who my one partner at the time was engineer, but you know, we neither of us had any CPG experience. So 
you know, it was a, it was a tricky fundraise to be, to be blunt. So it was, how do we get people on board and how do we prove out that, you know, this isn't a risk and, you know, we can show and prove the and de-risk the, the opportunity. And so, you know, that was one is going in out and getting LOIs. That was our, you know, my technique. I would go with a non-functioning prototype to the large retailers. I talked earlier about PR before we had a functioning product, but I would also go out, essentially sell as much to retailers as you are going to investors because without the retail interest, the investors are just, they're never going to trust that there's going to be any traction. It's just going to be, you know, a wild idea. So I would work with them and, and say, hey, listen, if we were to make this, like, here's the concept, here's what it's going to look like. If we were to make this, what would, would you take any? Would convince them to, to say yes. And then, hey, can you write me an LOI? You know, why do I need to write you an LOI? Well, I would just be honest. I need investment to make this. And they're not going to invest in my business unless I give the LOI. So it's the chicken and the egg. And and so they would, people, you know, would write it out. And, and then I would have stacks of LOIs and I'd go to, you know, investment meetings with them. And, you know, I went to San Francisco and had like 40 meetings lined up and, you know, came back empty handed, like I had zero investment. And so it was, you know, I thought I had cracked the code with these LOIs and, and I hadn't, but didn't deter me. I would, would continue to talk to other angel investors, as you had said, you know, I'd go to conferences and events and, and just anything that I could sign up for to, to network, whether it was CES was another great one. I, I would go there year in and year out and, and make a lot of contacts there. But, you know, really the, the big win was, as I spoke about earlier, the liquor company that, hey, this is something that, you know, can really help you versus just keep cutting me fifty and $100,000 checks I was getting with, with angels. But, you know, the fifty twenty five hundred thousand dollars $100,000 checks definitely kept us alive until we were able to, to convince the liquor company to, to take a bet on us. I like the fact that you mentioned LOIs, letters of intent, which is having proof to give to investors that there are people interested in the product. And you mentioned earlier that you didn't want to dilute the business. So how did you approach negotiating with angel investors to actually seek funding, but not give away huge portions of the business as well? Early on, we would do a convertible note. Right. And the convertible notes were great for us because we could, uh, you know, have uncapped with a discount, low interest rates at the time. They're, you know, probably triple what they were when, when we did it at this time. But and again, the for us, it's as long as we can get a good valuation and we had the choice on the valuation of the of the price round, then we were in control. That for me was very critical is I always wanted to be in control and, and still do right, uh, of, of the business and of the key decisions. And so like having the convertible loan just allowed us to, to operate and, and find that perfect partner with a higher valuation. And so that's what we were able to do. And then we would get the higher valuation. And then we've got a large liquor brand. We've got, you know, we closed Hamilton Beach and got them on as a, a licensing partner. And so now you've got blue chip companies that are on your cap table. And that's another just huge component to our success, I would say, just, you know, having those testimonials essentially like hey we're not just some crazy guy and crappy bartender in Canada we've got sophisticated partners that have the means to help us you know in, to ensure that we're successful right and so that was always the case with us that allowed you to substantially grow to a stage where you were raising VC fundraising so how did you know that you were ready for venture capital and how did you prepare differently for the fundraising this time you know i tried 
to, and no offense to, to venture capitalists uh, and venture capital world, but like I would do my best always to steer clear from them. And I would focus more on family funds and individual investors and strategic partners. And, and for me, it was, I learned early on as we started to, to get a few of these, you know, individuals or, or strategics that. I was allowed to conduct the business as I saw fit. And again, you, there's a common theme here. And it's, I'm going to sound like a control freak, but I feel like you have to, right? When I was the, the sole founder, when we launched the business, it was just me. And there was like four of us. It was a very, very small team. So, you know, having that control in decisions and, and pricing and all those things were key. So I didn't want to have venture capitalists kind of telling me what to do and how to do it. They have a vested interest. It's about like driving the valuation of the business as quickly as possible, right? Where for me, it was, you know, acquiring as many customers as possible uh, who love the product and, and providing them with just an incredible experience. And so we launched in 2019 and to date, we've never raised our prices on the capsules, right? And consumables, CPG has gone up. I don't want to be completely wrong here, but I'm going to say well over 40%. The price increases across the board have been incredibly significant. At least we've, we've taken on incredible price increases. We haven't passed those on to the customers. Now, that impacts margins, of course, and it trims you know, our profitability considerably. But for us, it's, hey, we want to make sure that the consumer is, you know, we're not creating any barriers of entry for the consumer to join the Bartesian family. Yeah, once they're in, they have high repeat purchase rates, and it's definitely adopting this new lifestyle. And one of those individuals who adopted this lifestyle is Mila Kunas. So you got to tell us about how you brought her onto the board. Yeah, no, that was, again, just, you know, one of those fortunate situations where, you know, we had a, a similar partner that she was working with. And I said to them, hey, why don't you send her the product? Like what, you know, has she had a Bartesian? And they're like, oh, maybe we'll see. And, you know, nothing came of it. And about six months later, that partner came to me and said, well, in fact, she has this product. Like she went out and bought it because she heard about it and she loves it. Her and Ashton actually fell in love with it and they've been gifting it for their friends and family for the last few months. And I said, hey, well, it's, I'd love to connect with them and, and talk if they're interested in, in getting involved in the business. And so... We set up meetings and and yeah, we, we were able to come to an agreement and and Mila joined our board. It's amazing to have them a part of the team and they're incredible people. And we're trying to figure out ways to get Mila in on some commercials for us. But again, we talked about our margins and profitability. I don't know if I have the money yet to, to get her on there. I like what you say about finding the right partners. So before all of the growth and fundraising, one thing that helped Bartesian was being a part of an incubator. What advice do you have for founders who are hoping to do the same? We were part of University of Waterloo's Velocity, which was an incredible and still is an incredible incubator. They didn't take any equity, you don't pay, just incredible breadth of resources that you could tap into. Honestly, we didn't tap into very many other than free space, which is huge, and just the ability to be able to be. That's a big one is how do you continue to keep our burn rate completely down almost to the flat line, especially when you're free launch and free revenue. It's like we can't afford anything that's not you know essential. And so not having to worry about literally keeping the lights on and, 
and having a, a space and printers and the internet. And, I mean, just all that stuff that you kind of take for granted that does add up the costs. And and so that's the one piece, obviously the cost, but just having that space that you've got a, a group of like-minded, young, energetic, positive folks, right? And I think entrepreneurs are, are likely, you know, eternal optimists, right? And I know I, know I am, I'm, I'm always just, what's, how can I find the positives of things? And so being surrounded by that is just, you know, lifts your spirits up and you also hear all the pain and the, and the horrible stories that everyone's going through. And you, I think being an entrepreneur, uh, I've heard many people say it could be very lonely. And so being a part of a group can help you feel you're not alone and, and terrible things happen. Everyone is a founder and, and just roll with it and keep going. And also don't get too excited when the winds happen because, you know, they won't last long probably either. And I think what's interesting is knowing how to stick with an idea or let something go. I know that you were a part of other startups and had other business ideas. So what about the Bartesian that was something that you actually wanted to dedicate yourself to? Yeah, you know, I, I was in the corporate world, but I've been an entrepreneur since I was, man, like nine years old. I, I had my side companies and I was always hustling. Like for me, it was always I just wanted to work. I always wanted to to find ways to create value and to make money. I, I was always driven by that. And so Bartesian was definitely a risk. I was going from a, a great paying job where I had, I think I had like 50 direct reports at the time and I was, you know, leading operations and sales doing well financially and, and was very young. And so things were on the trajectory for me that I, I felt like, oh, I'm checking the boxes. This is what I should be doing. But, you know, I was unhappy. Uh, I was commuting. Uh, you know, I had young kids at the time like I was barely seeing. And so it's like, wow, this is, they weren't kidding. Like, okay, great. You get these big paychecks, but what are you doing it for? Right. It's like, you just spend more, you make more. So it just, it felt like I was just digging a hole and, and filling it back up again and with no, you know, clear destination. Right. And so with Bartesian and, you know, I had dappled with side gigs, but never committed. And so my wife had finished her PhD. She's, she's a clinical psychologist and so right when she finished up and, you know, it happened to be the timing was really great. And I was like, hey, listen, we're not going to go broke. Like you can work and make some money to so we're, you know, we can feed the kids. Are you good if I quit my job? We make no money. And not only that, you know, I quit my job and then like sold all my investments basically to buy out some people within the company and move them out. And it was a huge risk financially for us. And, you know, having a partner that supported me was critical and still is today. And, you know, we uh, were able to navigate it, but it was tricky to, to go from, you know, making a paycheck to, you know, several years of, of nothing. I love hearing that because you had so much conviction and determination for this idea. And I think that's a common theme I get when speaking to a lot of founders. A lot of people will tell them that this doesn't sound like the most secure idea or the best choice, but they make decisions to make that choice right for them. The other part that I love so much, I think we touched on a little bit, is the element of the repeat purchases. I know in the beginning you said it was a struggle trying to be both a hardware company and a CPG company, but I think that was to your benefit because, again, once you're in the Bartesian life, you will continue with these repeat purchases. So, yeah, talk to us about the importance of this business model. Yeah, you're bang on. You know, once we started kind of hammering out the business model and, and looking at punching in, you know, modeling it out, right? And just saying, okay, if we acquire this many customers and they have this many cocktails, 
the numbers start to get pretty wild, right? Uh, it's that same technique with compound interest just starts to extrapolate and you have a significant business and that's what we modeled out and, and that's what came to fruition. And obviously it's not set it and forget it situation. You have to keep innovating and keep providing value to that consumer and, or else it's going to have the bread maker effect. And it's like, okay, great. I made this decision to, you know, plow down all this money for this cool product at the time. And now I regret it and it's not that great. I don't use it. And so that was something that we needed to ensure wouldn't be the case with our product. And so how do you do that? Well, you have to continue to provide value and, and newness to these folks. So, you know, introducing new cocktails for each season, uh, events that, that the cocktail could be launching for, accessories that help them curate a really incredible cocktail experience for them and their guests. And, you know, we would go and source and and, and we learned that just right from our customers. We had and have a really tremendous Facebook group with over 20,000 avid Bartesian users. And, and they tell us very clearly they're not, they don't hold anything back, which I love it. And, and it's like, Hey, we, we want, you know, these, this glassware, we don't know what kind of glassware to have. You're the experts you're making old fashions, you know, and, and my ties, I don't know, you know, what glass I'm supposed to buy to, to use and show my guests. And so it's like, all right, well, we're not a glassware company, but our customers are asking for this. Let's go figure out how to give them it. And so we did. And so it's like, let's go find and source really cool glassware that goes with each of our cocktails so that, you know, the consumer has that excellent experience. And then it was, you know, Hey, I love rimming sugars and rimming salts. Like, and I don't know which ones go best with these drinks, these cocktails. And again, we're not in the, you know, rimming sugar business, but, you know, fortunately we have a really incredible team uh, of, of innovators and, and they're entrepreneurs in their own right. Ever all the team members on Bartesian and, and it's like, hey, we've got a problem. We've got consumers who want this to be solved. Okay, who's willing to figure it out? And there's no shortage of hands go up and and boom, we've got a great lineup and business that does hundreds of thousands of dollars in rimming sugars and salt. So, you know, I think, again, not to compare us to an Apple or something like that, but, you know, like saw some stat about their AirPods, you know, business is, is bigger than you know, a lot of other very, very large companies, like it's, it's overtaken just that business itself. So, and that's from a demand from consumers for what they want to use with their product, with their core product. Right. And so it's a similar model and continuing to do that allows the consumers to double down on monthly recurring orders. And I think I talked to you earlier, I, I would never launch a business again, that doesn't have some sort of stickiness element to the customer because otherwise it's so hard and expensive to go and acquire that customer to go back and have to do it again and again and again without really any hook other than just, you know, hey, you once bought from us and this is something totally different, buy from us again. There's just, it's too crowded of a space and there's too many markets out there. I think having something that offers the stickiness is, is just get, gives you a competitive advantage in your model. Super crucial. And you're getting, your customers are telling you where to expand into, what product lines to create. And that's just the beginning I think you mentioned that in North America, only two out of a hundred people know about Bartesian. So there's so much room for expansion. Tell us what's next that you're excited to focus on. You're right. At first it was very, you know, frustrating for me. It's like, man, we're, we're getting, you know, we were Oprah's favorite thing in 2019 and, oh, we're set. We're good. Everyone's going to know about us or, or, you know, oh, CNN, you know, or Fox news or, you know, put us on here, business insider we're good. So in my head, I was naive. I just thought, okay, check the box of PR and awareness. We're, we're set. Well, 
not the case, not even remotely. And, and so even after all that, you know, going TikTok viral several times, we had over like 20 million views on one video that a customer posted. And again, a huge lift in sales, but still the awareness, you know, folks need to see things four or five times before it really resonates. And especially something that's new. Uh, we're not just like another blender or air dryer or something like that. We're a, a, a new category where, so we're, we're teaching and communicating that, Hey, here's something that, you know, wasn't there before. And now we've created it. And this is why you should, you know, put it in your house. So, so I used to get frustrated by it. Now I love it because, you know, here we are, we've in three years, we've achieved, you know, well over $150 million in sales and we're growing at an incredible clip. And, and so, and that's still with very limited category awareness right here in our backyard in the U.S. It's all uncut grass. And, you know, so what are we doing to, to change that? We fundraise and pretty much 95% of our last Series B is going right to category and product awareness and brand awareness early on and still to date, it's a heavier weight on uh, conversion, you know, marketing just to, to convert, right? Versus uh, brand marketing, right? And so now we're starting to shift away from just like 99% of our dollars going to conversion marketing to now, okay, let's maybe do an 80-20 split where 20% is on the brand and, and focus on top of funnel awareness. Well, very excited to see how Bartesian grows, and hopefully there's more people out of 100 North Americans that will know Bartesian in the near future. Great. Well, maybe after this podcast, it will get up to three or four, right? Yes, <laughs> definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Ryan. Thank you for having me, Schwang. It was really great to talk to you. That's Ryan Close, the CEO and founder of Bartesian. Our show is produced by Gogo Zoger and Megan Coyle, mixed and mastered by Miku Betlam and Matt Shorts. Benjamin Gottlieb is our supervising producer, and I'm Shwang Estershan. We'll catch you next time on Shopify Masters. <laughs>